you'd like to turn to Matthew's Gospel, you remember we were in uh, we were in uh, chapter five of Matthew, the place where it talks of the Sermon on the Mount, at least at the top of your Bible, Matthew's Gospel, chapter five, and you'll find these words written. Matthew 5 and verse 1 And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And so we go on. I want to stop this morning and uh, spend some time on the scripture that we talked about very briefly last night. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's in verse um, 6. That's a blessed estate, Christ says. People who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And I want to look at the scripture. We talked about what righteousness was last night. Righteousness is being right with God, in a right relationship with God, which means that I want to do God's will and I want God's will in my life. God desires me to live a certain way. God expects me to live a certain way. And that, and only that, is righteousness. Living the way God desires me to live. And God desires me to be Christ-like. To have the Spirit of Christ within and to walk in the grace and the love of God. That's God's desire. Not my own grace, not my own righteousness, but God's righteousness in me. Having the life of Christ within. Totally life contrary to the nature of man and to the ways of man and nature and life in God. Now that is what it means to have righteousness. But the scripture says, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. In other words, this is not merely a state. In the other scriptures, you remember the meek shall um, inherit the earth, but they were blessed and those that were poor in spirit were blessed. 
and we can tend to look at ourselves, but this is looking away unto God. We're not looking at ourselves now, we're looking at God. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's God-centered now. We've seen the poverty of our own souls, and we begin to hunger and thirst after God. Now, this scripture is very important for various reasons, but the two main ones is that this scripture is a test of your doctrine, that's your teaching and your beliefs of Christianity. That's the first thing it is. And the second is it's a very practical test as to the way you live. And you can find out, firstly, whether you're the teaching of Christianity that you have is the truth, and secondly, you can find out whether you practically live it. And so it's vital, and probably it's the kind of fulcrum or the turning point, the pivot, uh, of the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is this particular verse. We've studied the others at length, and now I want to open it up and look at it. Firstly, a test of our doctrine, our teaching. You know that most people when you present the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, come up with two objections. There are two main objections to the carnal mind when it comes to the gospel, the true gospel. I'm not talking about the claptrap that ministers get up and push forth from pulpits saying, believe in Jesus and you'll be happy ever after and he'll forgive your sins and you needn't live any particular way, you know, just love Jesus and it'll all be all right in the end. That's blasphemy. It's totally deprecating the truth of God and bringing it down to man's level. And that's wrong. But when the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented, that a man must be like Christ, that he must have the spirit of Christ within, the nature of Christ within, and have a transformation of his own human nature into God's nature, and become a partaker of the divine nature, then you get two complaints. One I remember very clearly was when I was at um, college, and I was... Uh, sharing the gospel with some people and there were about 14 people in a room and I was talking about the things of God with them and explaining how I couldn't do anything for salvation there's nothing I can do to change myself lots of us have tried to change ourselves you can't I can't change my nature myself I can't change my habits even or barely change them how many of us have tried, you know, years ago, the stupid idea of making New Year's resolutions? It only took a day, mostly, to get rid of them. Sometimes half a day and sometimes half an hour. Uh, you can make the best resolutions with the best intentions in life and you really think, this time I'll do it for half an hour or maybe a day, and you can't, you just can't change your nature, your nature is your nature, and that's it, and I was explaining to them how, when the grace of God comes to a heart, totally unmerited, undeserved, 
But God sovereignly moves in a person's life. He changes them inside and he reorientates the whole course of their life. And that's how the grace of God really meets a man or woman. And one of the people that was listening to me, I think she was a girl of about 22 then, she said to me, but, she says, if what you say is true, it makes it all too easy. She said, if we don't have to do anything and God does it all for us, surely it's too easy. It's too simple. And I said, that, my dear, is why so few people get saved. That is why there's so few Christians in the world. Because the truth of grace, the real truth of grace, is too simple. Most people are so intelligent, they miss it. And then we come to the second objection, which always rises after the first one, and you will find people gravitate between the two. And the second objection was this. When I pointed out that what we need is the spirit of Christ living within, so the nature of Christ becomes part of our nature. And we begin to show forth the fruit of the Spirit because of his life within. And it's Christ within that's the hope of glory. And that we need to begin to show the attributes of Christ. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that are poor in spirit. And that we need to see that our attitude needs to be Christ-like. And we take as our example Jesus Christ to live like him. And immediately you get the answer, that's impossible, it's too hard. Now the first is too easy, because you don't do anything. And then when you, that's presenting grace. And then when you present the standard that grace produces, they say it's too hard. The usual excuse is, well, everyone sins. No one can live up to that. All people fall short of that. And so you get the gravitation between these two heresies. One says, well, you know, it's impossible, can't ever be done. And the other says, well, it's too easy, so uh, what do we do for it? Nothing. Well, it's, it's silly. And that's the peculiar thing. Man, in his pea brain, has worked out doctrines and ideas of what righteousness is, and they have cockeyed ideas. And when you present the gospel, they come up with these objections. Too easy or impossible. Jesus did say, with man it's impossible, with, with God all things are possible. And you find that people always turn round and, and say most peculiar things to you. They argue. I've had people argue the most absurd ideas, which I'm sure they didn't believe themselves. Because when they see that it's necessary to have the life of Christ, what it does to a man who hasn't really become a Christian is it challenges him in such a way he has to say it's impossible or repent and turn to God. Now most people won't repent and turn to God, so they have to live in the impossibility syndrome. And that's the awful thing. And so, when you read this scripture, blessed are they which hunger 
and thirst after righteousness. You'll know if you dwell in one of those two errors. If you're one of those people that believes it's impossible to have the life of Christ, then you can't possibly be hungering and thirsting after righteousness because you don't believe it's obtainable in this life. You're one of those people that doesn't believe that there's a way into holiness and a way into being a partaker of the divine nature. So you're outside of grace. If so be, that is your attitude. And if you're one of those who feels it's too easy, well, you're also outside of grace. For you're not one of those who really does hunger and thirst And one who knows his own poverty of spirit knows there's no ease in it. No ease at all. And it really answers the objections, both objections that man brings. We can't do anything. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It puts the whole onus on God doing the work and yet me hungering and thirsting for it. It makes me say I can do nothing and yet I want what God has for me. I know I can't attain to it but I want what God is. I want his life, his nature, his spirit within me. Yet I know I can do nothing for it. I want that life within I hunger and thirst for it, yet I know that I can't change myself. I know I can do nothing for it. That's the first thing, a test of your doctrine. And the second thing is a practical test. It's a very practical scripture because it says, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And last night we didn't get on to the filling, but the promises of filling. Now, if I really am hungering and thirsting after righteousness, one thing that is going to happen is the Spirit of God it will fill me. Those that seek find, those that knock, it shall be opened, and those that ask receive. So if I'm truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness, one thing I'm going to have is fulfillment in my soul. I'm going to find that righteousness within. I'm going to find that the Spirit of God within has begun to work the fruit and grace of the Spirit in my life and heart. If so be, I've got the true hunger and thirst. And that's very practical. You can look at your life and you know whether... God's really working within. Do you know that the power of the Holy Ghost is really working within you? That you're not the same person you were last week or last year or the year before because God in his grace and his love and his mercy is working out his grace in you. Not that you've attained. Either we're already made perfect but you press towards the mark of the prize of the high high calling in Christ Jesus. You're pressing on in God. And you can see God has done real things in your life and changed you in a real way. You're not the same person you were and you hope you won't remain the same person you are because God in his faithfulness will take you on so that when you see Jesus you'll be like him. 
you're on the path, you're on the course, you're on the way. You haven't arrived, that's for sure. But, day by day you know you're going a step nearer. Now if that's so, then the work of grace has begun. Now if practically you can look at your life and you'll see only a deterioration, or very little movement anyway, then really there's no hunger and thirst there. And really, I doubt that the grace of the Spirit of God is in you. Or if he has been in you, you've done despite to the Spirit, and you've quenched the Spirit of God within, and there's something gone horribly wrong, and you need to come back to the basics of faith. And you can examine yourself quite easily. You can sit down one day and say, well, is it true? Is the grace of God really moving within. Do I desire now to be like Jesus? Do I want to be like him? What's really going on inside? Now that's a very practical question. I want to ask you, you know, it's not what you do outwardly, it's what you think inside. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. How does it go with you inside? Do you come to this church or Uh, come to the meeting and say I want to be more Christ-like when I leave than when I came I want to have something more of Jesus imparted I want to meet with him I want him to change me I know I have so many things he needs to change in my life so many areas where grace needs to come is that inside how you think? Or do you come and say, good, I hope we have a few nice choruses. Can I have a sing, clap my hands and say hallelujah and go home? Or is there a hunger and thirst after righteousness? Hmm? What's in you? Really in your gut, right down in the depths of your being. What motivates you? Is it to be like Jesus? Or to be successful. To be like Jesus or to be liked. To be like Jesus or to be popular. To be like Jesus or to be clever. What's really motivating your life? To be Christ-like? Or just to be one of those people who can drift along with the mass of the world and you know, not really disturb anyone, never say anything that would offend anyone because you want to live at peace with all. Uh, You don't want to ever have any opinions that are strongly held because if you do, you know it offends people. Or are you one of those people that believes in integrity and straightness and the standards of Christ and you'll stand up for what you believe, come what may? What's in you? Hmm? What ticks in your inward being? What really makes you tick inside? Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now if you really have the practical reality of it, you'll find that you know that you're justified by faith and your sins are forgiven. It's something you just know. You're never worried whether you are forgiven or not. Someone who's really met Christ knows they're forgiven. 
If you don't know, well, there's something gone wrong with your practical living. You also have an attitude of both wanting to will and to do of his good pleasure because God works it in you by his spirit. And somehow you delight to do the will of God. If so be, you've come to grace. And that's really the question. What do you want in life? What do you really will in your heart? Day by day, when you get up, what do you set your mind and your life on? Is it, well, today I want to really please God and delight his heart. Or today I want to achieve what I want. Now that really governs where you're going. During the day, what do you think about? Pleasing God or pleasing yourself? Do you ever think of God during the day? Or is he someone you think about on Sunday and for the rest of the week you hope he doesn't notice? Uh, and on Sunday you'll put on your Sunday smile, your Sunday coat and think, well, it's all right, I'm going to church and therefore I'll be all right. A lot of people live like that. They're called religious humbugs. It's an awful thing. It's the fruit of the Spirit being developed in your life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, patience. If people look at you, could they say, oh, I can see that's developing. Now, of course, this is not your natural nature. That's why it's a great advantage to have a brash, harsh, kind of aggressive nature. Because as you change and mellow, you know it's got to be the grace of God. Nothing else would cause it to mellow. Nothing else would cause it to change. But I, I pity the people that are, are, are well-mannered and talk with plums in their mouths. Wish they'd swallow them. And they, they talk with a whole attitude, ever so polite, ever so... You know, the religious people. God deliver us from them. You know, religion is an awful thing. The people who are bored up to church, bored up to religion, who are ever so good on the outside, but inside, when you really tap the depths, they're just like the Pharisees and Sadducees of old. They'd rub out and destroy and crucify the Christ afresh. They'd throw him out of their church. For he somehow knocks at all the facade. He somehow dents the varnished exterior and shows them to be humbugs that they are. And that's one of the amazing things, you know, religion is awful. Karl Marx called it the opiate of the people, and I agree with him. Religion, not that I'm a communist, may I make clear, socialism is satanic, but there's no doubt about it, religion, that's the empty, lifeless thing of going to a steeple house with a, a pagan altar and cross and candles and all that junk and fancy gear which people wear. I mean, that isn't Christianity. It's no more Christianity than the man in the moon. And there has been a man there, several. And um, 
What we have to understand is that's not Christianity. Christianity is having the nature of Jesus Christ within. Having the life of God inside. It's not being ever so polite and courteous in your natural demeanor, but it's having a spirit within that produces the change of your nature. It's not having a refined human nature, but it's having a divine nature living within you. That's Christianity, totally alien to religion, totally against it. Now, how do we know that we have the hungering and thirstings. I mean, if we know it's got to be there, blessed are they that hunger and thirst. What I need to know is whether I've got the right hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Know what righteousness is. It's having the life of Christ inside. But how do I know I'm really hungering and thirsting? I've come to the practical tests. I've looked at it. But what about this hungering and thirsting? How do I know? If I read lives of, say, Calvin and Wesley and Whitfield, and I read how God used them, how they used to get up at three o'clock in the morning and pray for four hours and go out and preach to 50,000, and I begin to compare my life with theirs, I find a difference. I find a great difference. And if I look at Luther, Martin Luther, and I read his life and his testimony, or Bunyan, or any of the great men of old, John Owen, Thomas Watson, the great Puritans, or I read of the mighty Quakers, the first generation who truly knew God, not the modern apology for it, but the true men of God, like James Naylor, George Fox, and those great men of old. And I begin reading their life history and their biographies. Or Mary Slessor out in Africa. Or a C.T. Studd. Or a Hudson Taylor who went off to China and gave his life on the mission field. When I begin reading stories about them and read how they live, my heart becomes challenged. Does yours? Do you say, oh God, that's what I want. I want a life like that burning out for you. Is there a hunger and a thirst? I hope you do read those books. They're excellent to read and they'll do you all good. And anyone that doesn't read them is foolish. You know, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians and watch the television rather than read the books. And they watch stupid things. They're more interested in Coronation Street or Crossroads than they are in Wesley or Whitfield. And those people have no hope of ever getting real salvation and life. For they live in a, a mythical world. I'm talking about men who really lived. A Mary Slessor who really went. A Mary Shall who went over to Paris and went into the slums and preached Jesus as a 22-year-old and saw hundreds converted and went round France and took one of the most genuine evangelical moves into France and then into Switzerland. Someone like that, you know, someone worthwhile. Not one of these modern 
pop evangelists, not one of these charismatic neurotics, but someone who knew God, someone who really lived the life of God, men like that who proved it right throughout their lives. You read that, and when you read it, does your heart begin to hunger and thirst and say, oh God, to have a life like that, to move like that, to be able to live like that for you, to be able to know your ways like that, that's what I want. Is there that hunger and thirst begin to get provoked? And then you read about Paul and Abraham, Moses and Peter, and somehow inside there wells up a longing, Lord, I want that life. And you read the wonderful words of Jesus and the way he walked on earth. And there comes a hunger within, oh God, that's what I want. You know, you can identify easier sometimes with the biographies of great men of God. Because the biographies of the great men of God often show forth their weaknesses and their difficulties. My wife is currently reading Whitfield's um, biography, beautiful biography. I recommend you all read it. Uh, It's a lovely biography. He fell out with Wesley, or should I say Wesley fell out with Whitfield. Now, Whitfield was the prince of preachers, the real prince. He knew how to bring the presence of God into the midst of the people. Now, Wesley was the evangelist. Wesley never was a church founder. Wesley was a, uh, an evangelist. And it's interesting to note how Wesley always looked for signs. He liked to see a few people frothing round about and a few people yelling out and a few people, you know, he wanted that. But Whitfield was different. He preached in such a way that, you know, sometimes 20 or 30,000 people were just melted in tears before the Lord. Their hearts just melted by hearing the glories of salvation. And how often they'd sit on horseback and tears would stream down their faces and wet the saddles they were sitting on because they saw a God of grace and love now Wesley did a work he messed up the revival that Whitfield had started and he did quite a work in England without a doubt but as an evangelist Whitfield my he brought people further and you see the two in a comparison it's a beautiful story when you begin to hear it and how the revival in North America really was provoked by Whitfield's ministry and that of men like Jonathan Edwards and how great it was, how wonderful. And you know, my heart cries out when I read of stories like that. I think, oh God, that's what I want. Do you? Do you hunger and thirst after that type of righteousness? I hope you're not like someone like Balaam. You remember Balaam, the wicked prophet in the Bible? He prayed a prayer once, and his prayer was this. He said, let me die the death of the righteous, and my last end be like his. That was his prayer to God. Let me die the death of the righteous. Let my last end be like his. 
And there's a lot of people in churches all around the country who want to die the death of the righteous. They want their last end to be like the end of the righteous. The only thing they don't want to do is live like the righteous. Balaam wanted to die like the righteous, but he wasn't so interested in living like the righteous. As his life proved, he went out and he prophesied for hire. People paid him, so he prophesied what they wanted to hear. There's a lot of people who are quite, they they come to Jesus only near death. They're worried that there's something beyond that they don't know. It's called the judgment. And they're worried about it, or they're worried about their sins, or they get conviction. So they want to work it out so that when they die they can have peace. But the truth is this. You won't die like the righteous if you don't live like the righteous. It's your living that counts and brings about the right death. There's no fear of death for those who love God. To those who really know him, there's no. it's just stepping out of this body and into eternity. You don't bother about silly thing like that. I mean, it's only a lump of clay after all. And, you know, it decays pretty quick. You get over 30 and it decays quicker. You get around 40 and it's rushing downhill. When you get to 50, who knows? I haven't got there yet. But I suppose it's decrepit. But you, you realize as you go down, age tells you, you don't want to live in that lump of clay forever. I mean, it's such a, a decaying mass. Admittedly, there are some people, the older they get, the bigger they get. And you don't think it's decaying, it seems to be enlarging. Well, that is merely a problem of diet. It's nothing to do with grace. What we have to understand is we just decay. I don't want to live here forever. I want to die the death of the righteous, but I know that my living has got to be right in order to be able to do that. Balaam had it the wrong way round. You know, the two things that stand out to a man who truly hungers and thirsts, the first thing is this, that we see through false righteousness. We see through the falsity. The people who have the kind of human righteousness, we see it as filthy rags and dung. Paul called it that in Philippians 3. He said, I count all things dung that I may win the excellency. He saw that the life of Christ was the only thing that counted. Not his education, not being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, not being a Hebrew circumcised the eighth day, not being baptized, not being baptized in water or spirit, or going to communion, or being confirmed, or having mumbo-jumbo said over you. Nothing to do with that. The thing was the spirit within. And the first thing a man will do if he's got real hunger and thirst, he sees through the false. It's easy to tell the false. Just get someone who's religious and start prodding them with words. Start tackling them where you can see the falsenesses. They'll get angry pretty quick. They might not show it on the outside because their their inane righteousness will kind of try and hide it but you can soon shake it down 
Start quoting a few scriptures and you'll find they'll argue against the truths of God. They'll put human conditions on it. Ah, yes, but. Soon as someone says that, you know there's no true righteousness of God there. It's a false thing. Human righteousness. And the man who's truly blessed and hungry and thirsting after righteousness, he's sick of his own righteousness. He's sick of the false, the human. He knows it's got to be the love and the nature of God within. He knows that his own living is no good. It must be Christ's life. In other words, he's come to the poverty of spirit. He's come to mourn over his sin and his wicked nature. And he seeks after Christ. That's the first thing. And the second thing is a deep awareness of the need of a saviour. A person who really hungers and thirsts after righteousness, the thing he knows is that he must have a saviour to save him. He knows without that he's totally lost. And if you've got a real hunger and thirst, those two things will be paramount in your life. The awareness of a need of a saviour and ever finding God. And the awareness, the total awareness of what human righteousness is and a detestation of it. And if you haven't got that, you haven't begun. And that's just about the sum total of it. That's not in you. Well, you might believe a lot of things, but you haven't kicked off yet. You might be nearly almost a Christian but you certainly aren't one if that's not so inside and you know the other thing I want you to notice um, which is very important is that hungering and thirsting is an active thing if you hunger and thirst after something it's not passive don't think that my belief in the sovereignty of God and the truth of God's sovereignty and he alone can do it means that I can sit back and say, oh, well, God's got to do it. You know, I can't do anything to help my poor self. Uh, God's got to do it all. I realize that. And you sit back and you wait. That's not what it's like. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness has a very active attitude. The first thing is, I need to realize that I avoid everything that opposes life. I avoid the things that oppose life. You won't find someone who's truly seeking after God um, going to certain places. He just wouldn't go there. You wouldn't go to bawdy films or bawdy theatre. You wouldn't be found looking at page three of the sun. You wouldn't be found living a life that's lower than God's life. You just wouldn't want it. You'd avoid it. For you'd know what it produced in you. You'd avoid the late night films on television that are so unfit for children that, that adults should be smart enough to know they're unfit for them but they put them on late because most adults are pretty dumb and they'll sit there and watch them but you avoid those things if so be you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness now that's an active thing you'll know that it'll work against it the second thing you'll avoid the things that are lawful there's things that you know are obviously unclean and impure and you wouldn't want to do those things. But then there are things that are lawful. There are things that 
are neither positive nor negative. They just dull the edge of your seeking after God. They're not things that you could say there was anything against them, but they become almost addictive to you. Now those things you need to avoid as well. There are people who get into a state where uh, they live for things. They're not lawful or unlawful. I know there are some people that almost live for their motor car. They will spend fortunes buying different steering wheels, different gear levers, different mud flaps, different spotlights, different this, different that. And it looks like a Christmas tree when it goes down the road. They call them custom cars. And they look stupid. Now, I mean, people live for that. There's other people who live for all sorts of things. People who live for clothes. Now, you need to wear clothes, don't get me wrong. Uh, in this climate, you'd be foolish not to. Uh, very cold. And you would probably be quite conspicuous if you didn't. That's one thing you need. But then there's the extreme of, well, you know, we've got extremes in our society now. I mean, there's people who have pink hair and kind of jeans that are torn in 50 places and then stuck together with safety pins. And all sorts. And then you've got the other people who spend fortunes on clothes and jewellery. And, and you think, well... And they live for it. They'll spend hours making up their face. Women spend hours making up their face. They can spend three quarters of an hour in front of a mirror, tarting themselves up. Now, admittedly, the way some women look, <laughs> you think it's probably better that they do. But generally speaking, what's wrong with the mentality? When people live like that and they can't face themselves as they really are, there's something awfully wrong. Then there's other people that are almost fanatical over health. They'll go to bodybuilding. They'll build themselves up till their biceps ripple. And, you know, ugh. There's something hideous about that to me. You know, they want to be Charles Atlas, or whoever it is. If he ever existed, I don't know. But they, 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 they have a, a, a fascination. Then there's people who've got hobbies, and their hobbies absolutely get their whole life, and they can't get away from it. I know people who collect stamps, little bits of paper that you put on envelopes, and they'll spend fortunes and they'll go miles to collect stamps. Now, I mean, when, once a stamp's been used, it's useless. But there are people who spend their life and they live for it. And they'll spend hours with little magnifying glasses looking at the stupid things. And they call that intelligence. Then there's grown men that play with railway trains. You know, grown men who spend hours with hobbies. I know there's some used to be over in Onga, madmen. They'd spend hours. They're interested in whether they've got a double O or something. I don't know. They, 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 they play with these trains and they build all fancy layouts. 
And whenever I've seen those, you know, I went once to, I walked into this exhibition and half the things weren't working. They were all got screwdrivers. I suppose that's the fun of it, trying to fix what doesn't work. But, I mean, what a pathetic thing. They won't carry anyone anywhere. They won't do any good. They spend hours tinkering with them. And people are like that. Now, those things aren't unlawful, but they're certainly detrimental to your coming to Christ. There's hobbies and attitudes. Spending hours in front of the television, watching series can be very detrimental if it robs you of time that you could spend with God seeking his face, reading good books, beginning to learn about righteousness. It'll certainly rob you. Now, it's not that it's unlawful watching soap operas. It's just mad. I mean, the people in America, I went over there at the time that J.R. was shot. And I didn't know much about who J.R. was. But I discovered there was T-shirts, mugs, anything, everywhere you went. And there were even people walking around the town with big T-shirts and emblazoned on them, I shot JR. What liars? Certainly didn't. And, you know, it so fascinated me to find out what the serial was about. I actually watched it to find out who did shoot him. Uh, I thought, well, <laughs> what is this? Well, I mean, people spend their lives. They live for it. Now, it's not there's something evil about it. It's just that, really, it'll rob you of the grace of God. If you're hungry and thirsting after righteousness, you won't have time for that. And then there's other things. Um, those things spoil your appetite for the things of God. And then there's other things. Living during the day. Do you remind yourself of where you're going? Do you have times of prayer? Do you have quiet times? Do you set times aside to read the Bible and seek God's face? Do you remind yourself every day constantly that you're to live like Jesus lived, to walk like he walked? Or do you just forget it? That's a question. If you truly want to go God's way and have the true hunger and thirst, you need to keep reminding yourself and provoking yourself and somehow exhorting yourself, Oh God, I want to be like thee. I want to have that nature and spirit. Do you put first things first? What really happens? If you really hunger and thirst after righteousness... You'll be where God's people are. You'll delight to meet with God's people. You'll delight to spend time with the people of God, reading the word of God, hearing exhortations from the word of God. You'll delight to be able to worship and praise with him. I always find people who are casual at fellowship are casual in their Christian life. It's a manifestation of it. Those that really hunger and thirst after righteousness they just want to spend time with people that hunger and thirst as well. And if you don't do that, there's something awfully wrong inside with you. And then there's um, the fourth thing is uh, you keep in a place where righteousness is exalted. You somehow like to find places where the righteousness of God is exalted. I couldn't go to a wishy-washy 
lukewarm church. I couldn't go to a place where it's all religion and facade because they have a nice youth club there or because they've got a nice social life. I couldn't. I have to go where Christ is preached. And then Bible reading. Do you know there's some people, Wesley, John Wesley, when he came in to the revival and he went down to Bristol, my wife was pointing out to me one of the problems with Wesley as to why he got the doctrine of perfection, which took many into error. One of the things that was wrong was that he spent more time reading the prayer book than he did reading his Bible. Whitfield spent his time on his knees studying scripture. Wesley spent his time saying the liturgy. And that really marked the difference. And you wonder why Methodism's gone the way it has. Look at its founder. It never really came clearly out. And therefore he incorporated many things that he shouldn't have done into his work. And then, of course, there's the reading of biographies, as I mentioned before. A person who's got a hunger and thirst and wants to see it generated, the active thing that he can do is read about men of God. Spend time not only reading your Bible, but reading about the men of faith. Because that certainly warms your heart. You start reading it and suddenly you think, Oh, Lord, that's what I want to be like. And it helps you to hunger and thirst. Those are active things you can do. They're active things you can partake in. Not that you can change yourself. Not that you can change your nature. God has to do that. But at least you can help to have the hunger and thirst. And you'll be blessed, said Christ, if you do. You can have the right attitude inside and that'll be blessed. For you will be filled, says Christ. So if you spend your time working to get that hunger and thirst, know that God will surely meet it and fill you. That's the glorious truth. All who lack righteousness, all of them who lack righteousness, remain under one thing, the wrath of God. That's why I need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because if I don't, the wrath of God abideth on me. If I don't hunger and thirst after righteousness and seek the righteousness of Christ, then the wrath of God abides on me. I'm in one place or the other. God's wrath and anger is against me if I'm not righteous. And it abides on me. If I don't live the way Christ demands, then the wrath of God abides on me. If I don't partake of his righteousness... And that's a very good reason for hungering and thirsting after righteousness, isn't it? The wrath and judgment of God is not a pleasant thing where he makes the mind reprobate, takes away judgment. If we know the glory of righteousness, really know what it is to have the life of Christ, we'd seek nothing else. Paul wrote, All that I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were yet made perfect, but I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. He said he counted everything else as dung, that he might win the excellency of Christ. What really happens in your life day by day? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? 
Is there a hungering and thirsting? Are the words of Jesus applicable to you? Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. If Christ was to come tonight and look at your life and God was to sit with you and talk with you, could he say that you were doing the things that would bring about that true hunger and thirsting? Could he say that you were living the life you should live? Or would he say, why did you do this? Why didn't you avoid that? Or will Jesus come and say, blessed are you, you hungered and thirsted after righteousness. I'll come to fill you and to change you and to make you what you really desire to be. Blessed are they that are poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. May God be able to say of us in that day, Blessed are ye, enter into your master's joy. May be able to say that we're one of those that sought, we ran the race, we received the prize. May be able to say that we are blessed now as well, actively working to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Not mine, but his. Hungering and thirsting after that spirit and life that's in him. Now either you're there or you're not. It's black or white. Let's pray. Father, thou hast said to us, those that ask, receive. To those that knock, it shall be opened. Those that seek will find. Lord, make our hearts, hearts that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Make our lives the lives of people that want to be like Jesus. Lord, change us inside. Change our natures. Let there come a longing with inside to be like Jesus. To have that same spirit and grace within, O oh God. Let there coming, come a longing within each heart and soul. A cry, oh, to be like Jesus. To be like him. For Lord Jesus, we know that Unless we have that life, the wrath of God abides on us. Unless we partake of that spirit, we're without hope. Lord, begin by your spirit to work within each one. Let us daily begin to examine ourselves. Actively to put off what would stop us from hungering and thirsting after thee. Lord, teach each one. Lord, by your Spirit, move in each heart and life. 
Let each one know, O oh God, that hunger and that thirst. Let it be real. Let it be God-given. And Lord, in your grace and your love, change each heart and life, I pray. Touch each soul. Inspire each individual till there comes that life flow from heaven that fills the longing breast and thy nature and thy name is glorified. Lord, bless each one. Keep each one. Help each one. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. May it be the truth of our hearts. Let's stand and sing. Thank you.
If you have the hunger and thirst after righteousness, you can truly sing it. I've loved thee in life. I will love thee in death. I'll love thee as long as thou lendest me breath. Either it's so, and all your life is one of loving him, or living for him, and your whole dispositions change to be a follower of the Lamb, or you've a ways to go yet. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Love to God will be the first and foremost thing in your life. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Is it true for you? I've loved it so in your life and in your heart 
may keep you and bring it to be a reality. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now, can be truly said of you, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. May God keep you. Let's sit down. <clears throat>